Hello, and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. And my name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we have a guest this week, a returning guest, Michael. Welcome back. Good to be back. Hopefully your audience isn't sick of me yet. Well, no one said anything to that uh, effect. I think you're our most recurring guest at this point. I believe so. So how does it feel to be (laughs) the star (laughs) guest of the most exciting podcast on the internet? Yes, definitive proof that I have the most time on my hands of all your friends. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's one way to look at it, I suppose. Yeah. So this week we are looking at uh, opening moments in movies. So a while back, I think it has been a while now, like about a dozen episodes back, we did movie endings or moments from the movie endings. And so we thought, well, it'd be, I mean, we've done that. We may as well do openings, movie openings. And I don't know if we're doing like the exact first few seconds of a movie, but you know, somewhere in that vicinity is what we're going to go with. Yeah. Opening scenes generally as a concept. Um, One of my picks is very much like the first 30 seconds to a minute you see the other and the one that i'll be talking about first is a little more loose but i think that's appropriate for the film i'm talking about which is also pretty loose and meandering uh, and i mean that in a good way so yeah. well, that's good did you guys have uh trouble trying to think of moments or mm, not really i mean finding ones that are really like centered in on the very just the beginning like <clears throat> first few minutes that that's a little tricky but there there were a lot of options yeah yeah this was one of those weeks where narrowing it down was kind of the trickier part um because i think too like normally a lot of the episodes we do are stuff like you know small moments from movies from like the mid 60s or something like that where it's like those aren't really things that i think about outside of the context of the show but favorite opening scenes to movies is conversations that i think film buffs have sorry i gotta move my cat uh film buffs have all the time with each other and just thinking about it you know among themselves so this was an easier one to generate uh uh, ideas for it was just a matter of narrowing to try to talk about something that was a little bit different than maybe the obvious choice like none of us went with like raiders of the lost ark for example right Right. also like if you're trying to review your scene you don't have to spend like five minutes trying to find out exactly where it is in the movie. You just hit play. <laughs> That's true. That, that is a bonus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right. Just search on YouTube X movie opening. Oh yeah. That's okay. Great. <laughs> Makes it easy. That didn't work for one of mine, but we'll get there. Oh. <laughs> um, oh yeah. Dan, you want to start us off? Sure. So my first pick comes from Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line. And it's in some ways just me wanting to find an excuse to talk about this movie because I, uh, I don't know if I've talked about it on the show, but I didn't like Malik that much for the longest time. I watched a couple of his films in high school and just didn't get it. I think I did mention that I saw Knight of Cups and that was weirdly the one where I'm like, I really yeah, like this, which is right. totally weird, but it's went back. truly insane. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe it was just like, I was in the, I was ready for Malik and that was just happened to be the one I saw when I was finally ready. So it could have been maybe time. any other. I mean, I worship at the altar of Malik, but even that, for me, that movie was just, you gone too far, Terry. 
<laughs> well, it's funny going in. I'm like, well, if Michael didn't like it, I don't know what hope I have. And I was like, this is great. So truly a weird moment in my life. But I went, started going back and rewatching um, Malik's that I had initially seen and been somewhat dismissive of, and then them really clicking in a big way. And this was one that I'd watched, I think when I was like 16, maybe, and liked, but didn't have a particularly profound reaction to, and then finally rewatched it um, a couple days ago, really, I think on the weekend uh, for the first time in years and was just like completely taken away by it's just mastery. It's so beautiful. It's so unique. It's so, it feels so like complex. And then you try to talk about it and you end up just kind of saying nothing because it's so, so much of his style is um, sort of this like poetry that you kind of just need to feel. They're hard movies to kind of analyze, I find, but um, I wanted to, focus in on the opening of the thin red line where we start with um the i guess protagonist of the story private wit who's gone awol and is living in this <clears throat> with this uh, melanesian tribe in the south pacific and just kind of living amongst this group and experiencing the natural world and we spend a long time with him just kind of hanging out in this setting and then reflecting on his own past and his feelings on on death and his concern about if he can face uh, death when it comes with the same grace that he's seen in the past and him being unsure. And I like this. There's two kind of main reasons I really kind of wanted to talk about it. One is just because um, I think it does a really good job of like setting up um, the war that will eventually be so shattering to this natural world because when you finally do get a battle scene, it's pretty late into the film. It's like maybe half an hour, 40 minutes in. There's a lot of buildup. And I think the fact that you start with so many minutes of just taking in natural world and these beautiful imagery and this sort of tranquility amidst horrors makes it so that when bombs start going off and people start getting killed, it sort of cuts to the core a lot more profoundly than it would had the film started with a more traditional, not even just with a more traditional war movie setup, but just didn't start with that emphasis on really taking in a peaceful, tranquil environment before ripping it asunder. The other reason I wanted to kind of highlight it is thinking about the intro as being such an atypical way to start a war movie. You know, this rather famously came out the same year as Saving Private Ryan, which opens once you get past the true opening, which is terrible with this amazing D-Day battle, which is a fantastic piece of filmmaking, but I think is also, and I don't mean this to necessarily dismiss the movie, but it's the, it's kind of the normal way to start a war movie with a big battle that sets the tone and sets the style. And the idea of just starting a war movie, like what if we show some trees and some birds and the sun, <laughs> like it's, it's a different way to start a film. And I like that on the simplest level of like, just telling the audience up front, like if you're coming for a traditional you know, men in war movie, this is not that. So just right up front, kind of put those expectations aside. There's elements of that here. And I think actually a lot of the uh, drama between the Elias Codius and Nick Nolte character is really rich and strong and feels like it could be out of a more conventional war movie, but that for the most part, this is not going to be that style of war film. So set those expectations aside now. Um, there's other things I kind of want to talk about with this intro, but for now I'll leave it at that and see what uh, we have to say as a collective. Well, I think it's I think it's pretty important to um, the overall themes of the movie, which 
if I'm interpreting it, it's kind of the classic war versus peace idea. And I really think he's exploring that idea as well. Um, and yeah, setting it up in this, in this beginning is, is important because he, I mean, you're seeing the natural world as in as much as humans can experience it. And even throughout the movie, he keeps going back to shots of, of the natural world and animals and stuff like that. And sometimes they're affected by the war sometimes they're not affected so i think there's a lot he's saying there too right like uh yeah war can be damaging but ultimately it's you know nature will still survive hopefully <laughs> but i mean malik like we've talked about before malik tends to be a little bit more optimistic in that regard too so yeah um i wrote uh sorry uh once you were mentioning how the average war movie would start on like a giant battle, like the other, but the other way that war movies conventionally start is they will start on a farm somewhere in middle America with the young man being called to war. And they also skip that part in this. They go, they're introducing this character who's, you know, it's an ensemble movie. He's not even really a, a central protagonist, mm -hmm. but they're, introducing him as a more sort of in a much different way than you'd normally see like the world war ii troops being introduced he's made to be this more thoughtful person who is living amongst these melanesians and you know gaining philosophical insights and that also kind of sets you up for the type of people you're going to be meet meeting in this movie um and then obviously the voiceover, which is also kind of setting up some of the philosophical ideas of the movie. Um, I'm just gonna compare it to a, another movie I considered uh, bringing up the opening scene of, of uh, for this, uh, which is another Malik film, uh, The Tree of Life, uh, with its opening um, setting up sort of the way of nature and the way of grace um, in a similar way. You can kind of see how Malik likes to open his movies with sort of a thesis statement like that. Mm -hmm. um, and this one, it's not necessarily setting up uh, two warring philosophies, but it is setting up two warring worlds, the sort of world of man and the world of nature and how they're kind of at odds with one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I like two things I like you say one that how his films kind of start with a thesis statement which is interesting because I think this one it does but in a way that is kind of loose and meandering where it's mm -hmm. there but it's not it's not necessarily just telling you what the movie is you kind of do just need to feel it uh, and I like how you describe how the film avoids the sort of middle America scene of like you know being drafted to war and thinking about how sort of atypical a character he's not really the protagonist but just a character for a movie like this wit is where he's not he's certainly not a gung-ho patriotic soldier he's not really necessarily like an uh anti-war um sort of rebel either he I, the closest sort of war movie character i can maybe think of would be someone like private joker in full metal jacket where and even then i don't think they're quite matching but just someone who's just kind of feels outside of this whole thing and in some ways feels really detached and yet can't really escape at the same time. Um, and yeah, the fact that like we feel, I feel like in some ways we get to know uh, Wit pretty well 
but we really don't like we don't know much about him or his personality but we just kind of get a sense of uh i don't know his emotional tenor it's really good work by jim caviezel it's a shame that he just never he just disappeared off the face of the earth after this movie also kind of got a little nutty eventually <laughs> but uh, yeah that's why uh, i was just like no no he didn't he's just gone he never made any other movies or any public mm-hmm. statements he disappeared into a vortex and he's right. gone <laughs> uh one other thing from this i wanted to bring up um the like very very first shot of this is this sick shot of a, a crocodile swimming in the swamp which i want to bring up firstly because crocodiles are awesome but also uh you're kind of merging the themes a little bit if you want to read between the lines a bit because it's nature but it's also a deadly predator mm-hmm. so uh it's kind of showing there that nature itself can be dangerous and more like in its own way but also this is alligators not eating something it's at peace mm-hmm. i want to say the nick nolte character actually has some dialogue to that effect where he talks about look around this jungle vines overtaking you know like nature is destruction nature is um which kind of would be themes malik would circle back to with the way of nature and the way of grace and the tree of life um so it's interesting that that gets sort of verbalized in a different way here and yeah i also like the shot is just really cool doesn't he end with the alligator as well i seem to remember doesn't he bookmark with it has been a minute since I've seen this. I remember the very last shot, though, being the ship going out to sea. Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't know where I that, got that. That's my memory of it. I mean, <clears throat> I just watched it, so you think I'd know better. But I want to say, yeah, the final shot, isn't it just like, yeah, it's the ship. Or it's okay. looking from the ship as it's like. Or if I was looking you know, at, as the ship goes away and you right. see the ocean kind of. Yeah. And, and I think it, I think it like stays while the credits are going, too. If I, remember, it, it, I don't think it does that i think it, i think it's just credits over black okay well. now i have to my blu-ray is like just a couple feet away so <laughs> if y'all want to wait a couple <laughs> minutes i can go through and find out um and the other thing i think that's really cool about the scene is you have this is kind of stretching it being the opening at this point it's been a couple minutes but he starts to wit pontificate on death and if he's going to be able to that there is no immortality and he wants to be able to face it with a certain grace and not knowing if he can or not and spoilers wit does die in the end of the film and it's i was kind of thinking watching like does do we get an answer to how he face faces death and i don't know that we really do because in some ways it feels like we're a bit detached from him when it happens and the moment is relatively quick so there's something there in terms of like how it sets up this idea of how he's going to face death and then answers it by kind of not answering it i think yeah but, what do you think he's saying about what do you think Malik is saying about the conflict between war and nature or is he not saying anything and he's just kind of throwing ideas out there for us to think about and i think it's not even just war versus nature it's <clears throat> humanity versus nature like we focus in on the humans doing stuff but even if it's not war that humans are engaged with the nature is still happening around us and in many ways it's indifferent even when we're wrecking things in the grand scheme of things mm. we're still just not one more set of animals uh yeah that's kind of what yeah. i got out of it too one more set of animals is a good way to put it like malik's camera kind of renders everyone equal well um, kind of if you guys don't mind me nerding out a little bit it kind of reminds me of uh there's a passage in lord of the rings 
where with Sam and where Sam and Frodo are almost at Mordor and it's it's pretty bleak right the outlook is pretty bleak they're they don't think their mission is going to last and there's a scene where um they see this destroyed statue and all of a sudden the sun kind of starts setting on it and they see it glowing and and I think it's Sam has this revelation he's like you know we may or may not fail at this and the evil may take over the land but it won't be forever and eventually the world is going to rebound and come back from this and and it's almost like it doesn't matter what we do the world will reset basically is kind of what he was saying and i think that malix is at a lot here too like like you said nature seems to be indifferent to all of our our petty squabbles and um, yeah i think, I think that's there's, a strong message in this movie i think there's some of that there for sure but i also think the way the intro plays out like it does set up this little and you could argue this is potentially like a colonialist worldview of like you know these tribal people as like an eden on earth uncorrupted by man but there is and there is something about the way that we spend several minutes sort of away from the war and there's discussions about death it's not just you know a perfect paradise but we are really separated that when that cruiser comes in and you know wits taken by sean penn and is sort of thrust back into the conflict it is a sort of disruptive force within the film in terms of certainly in terms of narrative because now wits on a different path and when he tries to go back he can't but just the feel of the film and the tone like there's a certain um utopia is a strong word but a certain tranquility i think i'll go back to to that early section that never comes back and like i think about the way that the i don't know if it's this i don't think it's the same location but there's that amazing scene where the soldiers actually like just decimate this village and it's very similar visually to this opening one if it's not the same one and you get this impression of like even if it's not a literal this place is destroyed for these characters they'll they can never return to it so i think there's a lot i think in some ways yes it is about how placing humanity within a relatively smaller position of power in the grand order of the universe but also how uh I don't think it trivializes, I guess I'll put it that way, the destructive capabilities of what's happening and how it will affect these people. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. Mm -hmm. And of course, with his next film, he would expand even more on this concept of Native Americans or or Native peoples in Eden corrupted by Mm -hmm. colonialists. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, this film kind of teases that. And in some ways, I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot to be said about this, but he kind of he definitely expands on that with much greater depth and probably nuance in uh, the new world which is also really good that was the first malik i saw after my awakening with knight of cups like first sort of older going back to malik and that was was quite the experience yeah that was the first one i saw in theaters which was released in a cut that i don't think is even available anymore really yeah um it's not even in the criterion that has like three different cuts and i know he released a version to theaters somehow uh was able to convince the studio to retract that version and release another theatrical version how does malik get away with this (laughs) i don't know he does the same guy who managed to just peace out from making any movies at all for like 20 years and then managed to make a giant war movie when his first one back Mm. when i was saying i I think 
you'll probably disagree with me. Michael, you might agree. You like my tweet about this at least, but the, my, my fan theory of Spielberg being like Salieri in 98 when Thin Red Line comes out and like, yeah, his movie's getting greater accolades and awards, but he just, he knows that Malick's artistry is better. And, you know, I've never met Steven. I can't ask him. <laughs> I'm just throwing this out there. He hasn't but come on the show yet. I, I do wonder if on some level there was like, Malick goes away for 20 years, does, you know, like, I think he tries to develop some projects in various stages, but nothing really gets close to fruition. Spielberg keeps working and builds himself as like the premier filmmaker of his generation, certainly in terms of fame and power. And then he releases his big war epic and then, oh, hey, Malik's back. And he just, <laughs> just did it better. Like it's, it's, it's a while. And I know there's lots of cases of like the Dante's Peak versus Inferno style, like two movies that came out the same year that. Volcano. Um, Volcano? What did I say? Not Inferno. Oh, that's the <laughs> Dan Brown adaptation. <laughs> <laughs> that's a movie no one's thought of. But um, there's all sorts of cases like that, but it's rare I find that it's like two like top tier like auteur filmmakers making films the only other one i can think of is like no country for old men there will be blood and even that one's a bit more vague in its yeah, similarities yeah i don't and i never really quite bought those as being on the same in the same kind of sport but mm-hmm. uh yeah i mean i, I don't want to get too deep into pitting these two movies against each other really uh i, I did find that tweet quite amusing but <laughs> Uh, it, it, we are kind of in the minority in saying that uh, Thin Red Line is the better one. I mean, That's obviously, true. a lot of people would disagree with us on that. I got um, a lot of comments being like, there's no way. No way. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right. Yeah, good pick, Dan. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Terry. You did a good job <laughs> on that film. Uh, Michael, you want to give us a look at your opening moment? Uh, yes. Um, so in honor of the uh, upcoming film uh, Licorice Pizza, thought I'd look at a uh, Paul Thomas Anderson film in its uh, opening moments. Um, hope I'm not, you know, going too far out of the spirit of the show by picking a like a whole six-minute scene. But I think the uh, prologue of Magnolia uh, deserves some uh, analysis. Um, so Magnolia, um, famous. Paul Thomas Anderson film looking at the lives of many uh, Angelinos in crisis on one night uh, opens with a odd little prologue before the opening credits, which are themselves a pretty cool opening scene, even if this prologue wasn't here, um, which doesn't feature any of the characters from the film and is instead uh, sort of a docudrama style monologue by uh, the famed magician Ricky Jay. Uh, just the narrator I think was chosen for its own reason, but I'll get to that in a second. Uh, looking at three examples from history of odd coincidences that have allegedly been documented. Uh, the first one being a uh, incident in 1911 where a man was killed by three, uh, three assailants whose last names happened to combine together to be the same as the man's property, which is being robbed. Uh, the second one being a story about a scuba diver being um, scooped up by a uh, airplane that's trying to grab water to put out a forest fire. Um, and then a third one, which is this elaborate uh, 
suicide slash homicide in which a man jumps off a building but is shot midway down uh, by his squabbling parents who didn't realize that a gun that they were firing in a argument was loaded bringing up the question of whether this should be counted as a suicide or as a homicide with a twist at the end uh, not going to go through all this in detail but um so this is obviously an odd scene it's kind of out of the style of the rest of the movie it's a bit uh it's a bit more glib it's kind of, kind of comedic almost in nature it has these uh third wall breaking fourth wall breaking uh tricks in it like at one point uh it sort of draws on the screen like a nfl uh thing uh to point out exactly how this guy jumped off the building um and in the at the end of the uh monologue by ricky jay he's saying you need to consider these things and ask yourself basically do these things just happen or is there something bigger going on uh do these things really happen all the time can that be a coincidence so this brings up a couple questions firstly um is there is the, the irony at the center of all this is that these scenes that are being brought forward to establish that coincidences really do happen in the world. They're all fake. None of these things actually happened. Go on to Snopes.com. They can debunk each one of them. Uh, I think the first one was made up at whole cloth by Paul Thomas Anderson. The second one's basically an urban legend. The third one is introduced in the voiceover as having been uh, a tale brought up in a forensics uh, convention which is true, this was brought up in a forensics convention, but it was brought up as a hypothetical uh, thought experiment. It was never claimed to be something that actually happened. Um, so these, these evidence uh, of how these kind of coincidences can happen, they, they can't happen. And this is where I think Ricky Jay comes in. Uh, Ricky Jay is a magician. His presence kind of invokes trickery, shall we say. It's, it's very F for fake. Um, but again, so what? I'll take all that away. What is the point of this prologue? I think the point of the prologue is basically just to set audiences up for this uh, film that's they're about to watch, which is Roger Ebert called these hyperlink movies, um, movies where separate stories kind of happen in parallel and they uh, combine and sort of interact one, uh, at times. Pulp Fiction is probably a famous example, but this is even more sprawling than that. This is closer to what Robert Altman is doing with stuff like Nashville and uh, Shortcuts. Um, and so he, he's not exactly inventing the style, but he is in many ways reintroducing the style for a new generation. And when a lot of people watch these movies or later films like this, like Crash or Babel, people are like, they, they, they watch it kind of in the wrong spirit. They're like, oh, BS, these people can't, there's no way all this happened in one day, which of course they didn't all happen. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a parable that you're watching. And I think it's this- fiction. Yeah, so, and I think this is in many ways added here as a way, to, as very snappy way to kind of get people to just say, don't take it too literally, just accept that coincidences happen in the world of this film. Don't take it too literally and, just watch it in that spirit. And then hopefully that suspension of disbelief will carry with them up to when some very strange weather starts happening in LA at the end. Um, and I think that's what this is all brought into the film for. Nicely put. 
Um, I really like the rookie J uh, consideration. I never had given his uh, voiceover as like that being the voice much thought, but I think that checks out really well. Um, I think one thing I'd add too is what I like about this is um, I think you and I, Michael, are both pretty big fans of this film. I'm not sure. I think Ian's less so. You seem to uh, be I a, like it. I, I you do. Okay. Yeah. You I, see, like I know it. you're like a PTA agnostic. A little Give it a bit. four on Letterbox. <laughs> okay, that's pretty yeah, good. No, I do like it. Um, but this era of PTA is very like there's a certain arrogance and ego to his films, and this one in particular, where it's like, I'm gonna have three hours, multiple stories. I'm gonna have like these long one or takes that are kind of just there to show off how great I am. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and this scene is like an example of like just sort of a power move of like. It has no relation to the plot. None of the characters are going to show up later, except Ricky J. we see later in the film, I believe, um, but not as a main character. And there's no connection to his voiceover work. Um, it's only there for thematic uh, connection in some ways in a film that's already three plus hours. And I know a lot of people kind of, there's been reevaluation of Magnolia uh, in recent years. Not that it's disliked now, but I know Anderson has made comments about, yeah, it's probably too long. I'd probably cut some stuff out. But I really like that it is reflective of a less sort of perfect filmmaker than he is now and someone who was a bit more arrogant and a bit more indulgent. And I think that's part of what makes this movie really special. And this is a good example of that where it doesn't need to be there, but it adds quite a bit in terms of, I, I love the way you put it, that it... Um, sort of like tells sets the audience expectations and a lot of it is just fun like the the sort of nfl drawings of like indicating you know how he's falling and where the gunshot's coming from it's it's just enjoyable and fun and creative and i know i don't know when you first saw this film i was like 16 17 mopey teenager which is like both the perfect and worst time to see this film but just yeah. those go ahead sorry yeah it's probably about the same age and those first few minutes, I just remember being like, this is amazing. Like, I'm so just already swept away by what this is doing. And um, the film does maintain that energy, I think, even though it is like long and very heavy. But I don't know, it doesn't it doesn't feel sort of monotonous to watch, I think. And I think details like this are a big part of why. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like uh, with licorice pizza coming up. Um I'm trying not to get too psyched up for the movie every time I do that <laughs> some bad things can happen but uh, I'm kind of hoping that that ends up being kind of a fusion of the old PTA versus the the new PTA it is what it I looks think, like yeah yeah because I'm hoping it has kind of that fun and that sort of humor of uh, the first couple Paul Thomas Anderson films which is, is later movies are far from humorless but they don't have quite the same fun so I'm hoping he can take that earlier style of kind of accessible fun and kind of do it in a more mature way that uh, kind of has that more of that precision that we get out of him in his uh, more recent films. Mm -hmm. I agree with those hopes. I, yeah, I mean, I'm not doing a good job at all not getting myself too hyped. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like full in, which is a bad idea because I was like that with Inherent Vice and then was pretty mixed on it, but I've been meaning to give it another look. Yeah, but you've yeah. been liking everything lately, so you'll you'll be fine. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I rewatched No Time to Die yesterday for oh. working with a buddy on something, and no, that one's still bad. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. 
cool. if anything, I liked it less because now I know where it's all going. So all the stuff I'm like, oh, these action scenes are good. I'm like, yeah, but. <laughs> so poor bitter Dan. Yeah, but I'm not bitter about this film and this opening scene, which is amazing. Yeah, I just think Actually, those stories are cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, they're just kind of neat. There's a there's a Fargo esque like based on a true story, except yeah, not definitely. really where it's like. They're, they are fun stories that they feel like they're true stories, even though they're not. They're very um, presented like they are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they, at the beginning of each one, they cite like a newspaper article or um, the that uh, conference that he cites for the last one. And they, they each, one, each one of them also has a somewhat distinct style. Uh, the first one was actually filmed on vintage hand-cranked cameras which is uh, pretty pretty distinct. If you had told me that was just stock footage from some silent movie, I would have believed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, uh, the last scene has all those sort of fourth wall breaks. And then the middle one with the scuba diver, that's, that one's a bit more straightforward, but Patton Oswalt's in it. So that really yes. livens <laughs> things up before anyone, I don't know how many people knew who he was at the time. I certainly didn't, yeah. but... He also has a small cameo in um, Man on the Moon that same year. He's just like a guy in a restaurant. We're like, hey, aren't you Andy Kaufman? He's like, no. I'm like, mm-hmm. is that? And I looked it up and sure aren't enough. are you at Patton Oswalt? No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess he was just popular amongst comedians. and Not the PTA is a comedian, but he seems to, I don't know, find a lot of value in that world. Um, something I think that's interesting too, though, is the, the debate about like, do these things just happen and do they not? And as you point out, all these stories are fake and Ricky Jay is a magician. So on one hand, that does lead you to believe, no, this is a show. It's manipulation. But I do, there's the one line from the movie that I think is also Ricky Jay's narration that I always remember of strange things happen all the time. And the idea that like, especially thinking about people who, a lot of people tend to think of, you know, their lives as movies or as stories where they're the protagonist. And if you think that way, most interactions at various points are like your story clashing with somebody else's. And usually it's like pretty mundane, your story of going to the store to get some milk and the cashier who's selling it to you. It's not exactly, you know, great drama, but thinking that in it, you know, in interactions, people, everyone's bringing all their collective baggage to that, this notion that like bizarre or extraordinary or strange things and coincidences can happen. I don't know. Maybe I'm just drinking the Kool-Aid, but I think there's something there that is worth buying into potentially on some level. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of what the, these hyperlink movies are supposed to be all about. It's sort of finding the vastness of humanity um, instead of just uh, being this kind of centered in on one person and acting like they're the center of the universe in a hero's journey kind of way. Mm-hmm. This one, I think, does it maybe the best. Pulp Fiction might be a better movie overall, but in terms of that style... Yeah, I mean, Pulp Fiction is only kind of tangentially the same yeah. thing. Um, that's kind of more like three stories intertwined versus right. You know, ten. Right, and th- there are, like, discrete stories. Like, they overlap at points, but there's, like, this section, this mm. section, and this section, whereas there's Magnolia, so it's just, like, it's like, like a bowl of pasta. Everything's just, you know, overlapping with each other. Yeah. Right. So good. No, I'm meaning to rewatch bad. this too, actually. Maybe tonight. 
Yeah. I got three hours to spare. <laughs> All right. What's up? We'll uh, we'll forgive you for going cinema in 360 seconds. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let we'll let this one slide, Michael. I cheated this week too, so I think it's okay. We're okay. All right. Should we move on to something completely different? Let's do it. <laughs> okay. A little bit less prestigious if you're going yeah. with what I think you're going this, with. Uh, this one won't uh, take very long. I just thought it was an interesting one to mention that would be different than the rest of the picks we've got today. So we're going with The Hangover from 2009. <laughs> from Academy Award nominee, Todd Phillips. Yeah, all these filmmakers right. are Academy Award nominees. They're all Academy <laughs> Award Best Director losers. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, the opening scene of... Uh, the hangover it it opens in a mystery which is kind of what i want to talk about where you basically have the bride of the story who's the bride of the wedding that the hangovers it's a bachelor party right so you get her getting a phone call from phil which is played by bradley cooper and he's basically saying well big the big line is well i'm not going to swear in the podcast because we haven't yet so uh, we effed up is basically what he says. We're gonna, we'll keep that E rating off of us for a little bit. And uh, I did drop an F bomb once, but I cut it out. <laughs> so, magic good. of editing. And so, and he's like out somewhere in the desert and he's looking scruffy and he's got a cut lip. And, uh, and you know, you kind of see the other guys in the background and you have no idea what's going on, but they're looking pretty shaggy. And she's like, well, we're supposed to get married in five hours. And he just says, yeah. she's like, yeah, we lost him. We lost you. We lost uh, the groom. Yeah, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen <laughs> is the last thing he says. He's like, yeah, that's not going to happen. And then and then that's it. And then it goes into the, into the movie in full from that point on. But I, I like that kind of flash forward idea. And I, I just wanted to point it out because... I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to analyze the hangover now because it's been, it's been 12 years and it's, you know, we could say it's influenced a lot of comedy since then, as much as mm. there's been comedy, I guess. Yeah. Before um, the genre died. <laughs> the genre did kind of just die, but I just think it's a, it's an interesting way to start like a goofy comedy like that. And I like how it actually sets up the mystery because one of the, we can argue about the merits and non-merits of hangover all day if we want to. But what I really want to talk about it is the, the idea of the mystery that's embedded in this comedy, because that's what kind of keeps, keeps me thinking of that movie in a strong light is that they actually have a core mystery to what happened to Doug. And the movie is still centered around that for all the goofy, ridiculous stuff they get into. It's, it's like a it's a mystery underneath the comedy dressings and this opening scene highlights that and it basically establishes that idea and i don't know about you guys like you might not be hangover fans i have a sense you might not be but i, I, I haven't seen liked it in that 10 idea. years <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i don't know if i'm a fan i liked it back in when i would have i didn't see it in theaters i saw it on dvd at like a birthday party or something um so like 2010 around then because it came up what 2009 yeah 2009 okay yeah so i liked it a lot then but i was like 14 so you know mileage will vary yeah watching uh, it now 
So I, I haven't seen it since it was in theaters either, but I do oh, really? have I do have distinct opinions about it though. Mm. Um, so this opening scene, I totally agree with you. It's a very interesting way to open a comedy like this. I I like the ominous note it brings in, and it transitions to that like montage of uh, Las Vegas skyline set to like a Danzig song, which uh, sets this tone for the film. It suggests that like this is kind of this whole journey is it's on a road to ruin that um, as much as all this ant- all these antics seem funny at the end of the day, this is a movie about people who effed up and who eventually are going to have to face the consequences for the their immaturity. And then the movie does not deliver on that at all at the end. It, it completely just backpedals <laughs> as fast as it possibly can once it get, comes back, cycles back around to that scene. And they are immediately forgiven for everything by the movie. And that to me is where this movie loses it for me. Like it, it sets you up for a more interesting movie than what it delivers on. And I do ultimately, I, I, it, when I reviewed the film, I gave it your three stars. It, it was a good movie. Go see it, enjoy it. But to me, this could have been much more if it had really kind of delivered on this somewhat subversive concept it seems to be setting up in this opening sequence. So in a way, I kind of love and hate this opening scene. <laughs> That's <laughs> well, I mean, it, It's the collective trilogy that really delivers that thoughtful story that you were I didn't say for. the sequels. Me neither. <laughs> yeah. From what I, 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 I'm mostly shit posting. From what I understand, the sequels do uh, not do that. I heard the I third heard... one was very violent, but that's it. I do know that they kill a giraffe in the third one, which almost made me want to see the third one. <laughs> but then I would have had to see the second one, so I'm like, nah. Sure. Yep. How, you can't keep up if you don't <laughs> get to study the lore. Um, I mean, I do think there's something very interesting to starting because this came in the wake of like the sort of Apatow brand of comedies. And as far as I know, no one one from Apatow has anything to do with this movie, but it's kind of riding a similar wave. But that element of like solving a mystery does give it a bit of a distinct edge. I would compare it though slightly to like super bad which is not a mystery but it does have these characters who are on like a mission that they need to solve in a sort of time frame um which uh ultimately i would argue super bad is the superior film but that's probably not too controversial um yeah i mean i don't have too strong opinions about this opening other than it is a neat idea to set it up with a mystery that the solution to ends up being reasonably clever it's nothing amazing but um when they do actually find where he is, I think that's a pretty uh, amusing payoff. Yeah, I think um, so too. And I, I like story, how I like I how they Michael's set points. up, <laughs> and I like how they set up the seeds for 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 what they're gonna discover as they go along the way. And so, like all this crazy stuff they find in their apartment, like the tiger and all that, most of it actually gets explained, and some of it doesn't at all, and it still continues to be a mystery. Um, like. Uh, like the chicken that's just wandering around their, around their hotel room, for example. Uh, but for the most part, most of the pieces actually end up falling into place, which, uh, which I think is cool too, that they actually put the, you know, they actually connected all those dots instead of just blowing it off like another comedy might be. Yeah, say that, though. Go, sorry, go ahead, Michael. Okay, uh, one neat touch I did notice when I was reviewing it for this um, was that um, when, before they get the call from uh 
Bradley Cooper. Uh, you hear them try to call the other three guys in the wedding party, and you get get like a brief. Uh, you briefly hear their voicemail for each one, and you kind of get introduced to each of the characters through their dumb voicemail intros. <laughs> good characterization. Yeah, good yeah. Um, I will say, and this is not really related to like analyzing the scene itself so much as analyzing our co-hosts, but Ian, I'm actually surprised you're a fan of this movie because, I mean, not that you're a prude, but there's a certain vulgarity to it that seems to clash with how I think of your your film tastes. That's true. There's some, there's, I mean, there are parts of this movie that I would, would cut if it was me, like I would get rid of, but um, honestly, I just, I like the, there's actually a story that they build the jokes around and that does a lot for me. The other thing I want to mention about the opening scene is a good, is indicative of this is that I think more so than other straight, straightforward comedies, especially during this time period, is that The Hangover really cares about how it looks at that, right? Like, um, I think there's more, much more going into the cinematography here than something like uh, 40-Year-Old Virgin or Wedding Crashers would even bother with. But they, they care about, like, what does the background look like? What does the lighting look like? What are we going to make Vegas look like? And... Um, I don't know. I just think that that's another interesting aspect to that you don't usually see in a movie like this. Yeah, I had to agree with that to some extent. Which is interesting because, I mean, it would bear out with that, you know, Todd Phillips would have a more interesting sort of post-comedy career than uh, some of his some of his peers. I mean, you know, I think we have disagreements between the three of us about where Joker stands, but it looks really good. Oh, I think is. <laughs> Well, I know, well, Michael likes it. Oh, does he? Okay. I, 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 I would say that that is a movie that both the fans of and detractors from should maybe not take so seriously. It's it's a graphic novel adaptation. It's trying to be like a graphic novel from the eighties. Uh, I think it's cool in that sense. I don't think it's a grand uh, statement about our times, and I also don't think it's dangerous propaganda or whatever it is the it's definitely most not dangerous people <laughs> thought it was yeah that was that was just truly bizarre to yeah. live through and then i saw the movie i was like really <laughs> well yeah gotham city looks cool in it i think yeah joaquin phoenix is good in it um the ending worked the soundtrack selections were interesting i i think it's a neat movie but that- well and that's i mean it, it's reflective of like or it's indicative that like we can kind of see even in something like the hangover, which would be easy to dismiss as I've kind of been kind of glib about it, but there are sort of seeds of him being a more thoughtful filmmaker than maybe he would be given credit for at that time. Um, so I don't know where the sequels fit into that, but yeah, they don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see them? Yeah. They're horrid. Is the third one better than the second Actually, one? The third one, I completely forget. Honestly, it's completely forgettable. The second Did one you not- was out was atrocious but they killed the giraffe how'd you not remember that i don't remember it i don't know what to tell you <laughs> fair enough um okay well let's get off of a hangover we can move on cool let's uh yeah dan you're up next okay this is <clears throat> another hard left um so my next pick is akira from 1988 the uh, bastion of anime in the west so 
if anyone who hasn't seen the film, it has quite a stark opening where we open on an image of uh, Tokyo in 1988, you know, urban skyline, modern and uh, sort of very, yeah, just this modern cityscape. And then all of a sudden this nuclear, um, I don't know what the term would be. This nuclear explosion basically envelops the city. Shockwave. Yeah, shockwave. And then there's a blinding white light. And then the director credit written and directed by Katsuhiro Otoma. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but his director's credit comes up, which in itself is like the most powerful flex in the world. Like (laughs) destroy an entire city. Yeah, I made this. Um, And then we get text of uh, Neo Tokyo 31 years after World War III. And we see how the city looks now. In the distant future of 2019. Yes. <laughs> yeah, our very far off uh, sci-fi dystopia. Um, and then what, what really sells this moment for me, though, is like that in itself is like an amazing way to start the film. It very clearly foregrounds this is going to be a movie that's um, metaphorically grappling with the legacy of Japan in a post-nuclear age and how the country moves from there. Um, it also does a really good job of like indicating from the start that the story is going to be very much about politics on a large scale because the story that then unfolds for the first act, like there's allusions to government conspiracy, but the actual first act and the main characters are pretty low scale and just sort of like this local gang who aren't really, um, aren't totally conscious of the bigness that they're grappling with, but this scene really sets that up. But then what I love is then it, we go back to the initial destruction and it's just this crater and the score is just like this percussive, just like. Brutal way to start a movie. And the reason I'm kind of highlighting that is because I like to think about how, when this first came out in America, which I believe it was released in like the early nineties, um, And I like to imagine, I wasn't alive, but I like to imagine audiences seeing it and sort of having inklings of this like weird cartoon movie that was like different, but not being totally prepared for this kind of adult animated movie. Because there's certainly precedence in American animation, stuff like um, Fritz the Cat and Ralph Bakshi's work in general, or even like the animated movie Heavy Metal. But those are very juvenile and like sort of fantasies for teenagers and this is not that and just the idea of almost wanting to put myself in that position of not knowing what this movie is and just having a baseline expectations for what cartoons are and then opening that way I I can't imagine how shocking and stunning a moment that would be um so yeah that's my pick for Akira yeah I mean I'm not an expert on it but I think it's release in the western world was very piecemeal it was kind of a cult movie really i don't know if it got like any kind of wide theatrical release uh, i think it must have gotten some but most people discovered it on video like vhs probably at the time um but uh yeah so a uh, couple notes on this one so the date of this uh, uh presumably nuclear but yeah, not really it's not uh, really as we learn later <laughs> uh the date they put on for that is july 16th 1988 do you know the significance of that date i do not that was the theatrical release date in japan holy <laughs> shit that is the coolest thing in the world so someone shows up opening day 
to watch that on that day the world's gonna end wow. or not the world but the city of tokyo is going <laughs> the to... world for the people in that <laughs> radius yeah wow so this is the greatest flex of an intro of all time and then immediately being like <laughs> written and directed by me like holy shit the power also really like the just giantness of the title card akira just mm-hmm. spreads across the whole screen um so this um image of the uh to- old tokyo being consumed by this dome-like shockwave um that comes directly from the manga it's, it was like the um most iconic thing from the man- manga that it opens on this splash page of tokyo getting destroyed by this blast um, and in the manga, it's a black dome uh, against white um, outlines, whereas in the movie, it's a white dome against darker outlines, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once the white like consumes the screen, that's where the credits go on to, which is interesting. Um, and yeah, the, uh, the crater, that's quite the image as well. The crater is, well, I'll, I'll get back to the crater in a sec, but the uh, the other thing I like too is when you first open on the 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 city, I, and I didn't necessarily think about it the first time I watched it, but it's a still image. It's not moving. Um, and so it's literally, it's not just like the sort of right before the bomb, but it's like the pinpoint, like the millisecond, before, not the bomb. It's not a bomb, but the millisecond before this event occurs. So it's like this last fleeting glimpse of, piece before everything is obliterated and it was also probably one of the, that the stillness one of the cheaper parts to animate because the rest of the film is not every single frame is so expensive um and the, the crater is actually how i was introduced to this film obviously because it's you know the intro of the movie but the first time i saw anything akira i would have been like 12 or 13 and just watching whatever on youtube and it was uh channel four's list of the top 100 like cartoons which was kind of a crappy list because it was intermixing movies and TV shows. So I don't like that. But I remember it was like the top 20 or so. And like 17 was like Aladdin or something like that. Or it was definitely Aladdin. I don't know if this was the exact number, but they, you know, showing clips and they're having various talking heads. And then that section ends with uh, just the tail end of a whole new world. And then fades out nicely. And then it cuts to the next one. And it's like, 15 akira and it's just the crater and that like stark music and i remember watching and just being like what is this like mm-hmm. this what is this like i i've never in terms of like those types of uh presentations to attract you to uh something you hadn't seen before i don't think i've ever felt that pull as powerfully as when i saw that crater and being like i have to see this movie i wouldn't end up seeing it for several more years but i always had that image in my head I think the first time I would have been introduced to it was a segment on Siskel and Ebert where they were talking about, hey, what's this anime thing that has suddenly emerged? Uh, so anime is Japanese animation. It's movies like Akira and it cuts to the like motorcycle chase. And <laughs> that, that got me interested in anime. <laughs> yeah, that's all you need. I mean... And it did lead to like the certain the anime that was really popular for a long time was like cool action movies for dudes. But when they're this good, you can't really complain. Or like Pokemon. (laughs) Yes, or that, which I was familiar with Pokemon as a child. Like Um, Speed Racer back in the day. 
yeah that's yeah, a bit before an Astro Boy <laughs> and that was uh that was stuff people watched not even knowing it was anime <laughs> there's no hey this is a weird looking cartoon on saturday morning yeah i mean it's it's something that comes up later too when you get this is much later but something like Yu-Gi-Oh, where it's like you know grandpa miyamoto it's like okay but then joey wheeler it's like where do these characters live <laughs> why does this guy speak with a brooklyn accent this doesn't look like brooklyn but uh yeah and that's the other thing like i don't know i i hadn't seen real anime as it were like for connoisseurs would say until akira i think i, I hadn't even seen any miyazaki films yet so this was my i'd seen stuff like pokemon and dragon ball z when i was a kid but it's not dragon ball z maybe a little bit more because it's pretty violent compared to all the other cartoons i was watching at the time but um this was certainly like an introduction to a, a whole, I saw this and I saw my neighbor Totoro and I was like, wow, all anime is amazing. And then I started watching more films like, well, maybe not. Maybe some of this is actually like anything else. Peaks and valleys. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that was an explosive pick. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I'm quitting the show. <laughs> Have you seen Akira? Yeah, yeah, but it's been a long time. Okay. Now I really want to rewatch it. I thought that's why you were defaulting to that joke because you hadn't seen it. So it's like, that was an explosive pick. Moving on. In a very long time. But that scene, that image does stick in your head. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. And it's good too, because like the film, I don't mind this. I, it gets really like complicated story-wise and a little convoluted. I think you can just kind of go with it. But the fact that it does start on such simple, powerful imagery kind of carries you through so even when you get a little muddled on the details or like a character goes on like a big exposition dump and you're like Wait, what you have this sort of big picture stuff that i think grounds you um really well so yeah. no that's a really good pick actually Dan. all right from one experience of nuclear war to another uh that's <laughs> one way of transitioning <laughs> um okay getting into the deep end with this one um so my pick is from the 1959 uh uh alan renee film uh hiroshima manamore uh which is uh pretty heavy film pretty difficult uh one to really wrap your head around uh renee is one of the more challenging filmmakers in the canon um so just to introduce the film it's uh the film is about a brief affair between a french woman and a japanese man while the woman is in uh the city of hiroshima which has been rebuilt um to make a film uh it's described as a film about peace she's an actress in it um and these two people have uh some pretty heavy uh war experiences um the man's family was killed in hiroshima while he was away in the army and won't go into too many details about the woman as that's revealed pretty late uh, but she has her own heavy experience and in many ways the film's about kind of comparing and tra- contrasting the different ways different kinds of trauma these two people have and the way that they are dealing with that and it opens with this just bravura, like 15 minute long prologue um, of which I will just, for the sake of this podcast, I will consider my small scene to be just the first two shots of this uh, extended sequence, um, which 
are is uh, very striking just first two moments opening the film um and it's a sequence of the the man and the woman they're in bed uh making love and the camera is real close in on them as they're entangled uh it's it's a tasteful shot um focusing on kind of their arms as they're gripping each other and as it opens you're it, in a kind of surreal touch you're seeing dust raining down on them as if it's almost like fallout from of uh, bombing either in europe or the or hiroshima itself and and then in the next shot it's either the the dust is like uh mixing with their sweat um but then after those two shots that that goes away and you're just continuing to watch them it in bed as they as over the soundtrack you start hearing a voiceover of a conversation they had about uh the different ways they perceive uh hiroshima and the way they're perceiving the trauma and we could go on and on if we get too deep into that whole sequence but as far as those first two shots go what I think that symbolizes is the the dust is the aura of trauma that is just living with these people even uh, this much later. It's uh, representing that they're carrying that with them, and even um, uh, as they're you know having an affair, that's still on their heads in their heads through the whole thing. It's a mix of the sort of uh the height of human pain and pleasure uh mixed together in that image um and i think it's very striking um (laughs) to say the least yeah well i had seen this film years and years ago not maybe not that many years ago but it felt like it'd been like a long time so when i saw you were going to talk about it i rewatched the movie which was good um, because the first time I saw it, I knew that I'd seen something like really great. I mean, it's hard not to just immediately be taken by the film's visual style and some of its Revora editing. Um, and we don't have to go too deep into it, but this one, this being one of the key sort of French new wave texts, you, re- you get that pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I remember like my takeaway being like, just kind of almost being overwhelmed and rewatching it. I remembered why, because it does, this opening does just kind of throw you in not just with the imagery, but with like the debate. Cause I want to say like a lot of the dialogue too is her talking about, oh, she understands. And then being like, you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just goes on. Like that keeps being repeated. So right away you've got, you know, a loaded, complicated, painful history. And you have overt questions about how much can we really understand or connect with historical events that we weren't touched by but we're only experiencing through images we see of them and stories we hear of them which is a lot to take in when you don't even know what the characters names are um and you kind of think a conventional film would you know introduce you to the characters have them get to know each other and build to a scene like this this one just starts and it it takes time i think i'll need to watch this a couple more times before i can really talk about it with any degree of i don't know (laughs) uh clarity but i do think it's a a challenging way to start that immediately before you're even through the prologue demands like okay i'm gonna have to go back to this when i have a fuller picture of what this is just to really grapple with it um 
I like the point you make too about the imagery being like a representation of the the grief and trauma that continues to linger, um, which certainly becomes more literal when we uh, get a sense of both of their stories and how trauma from the war still shapes their lives. Yeah, so, it's... Uh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to ask, because I, I haven't seen this movie, so just based on your description, so the dust that's coming, like, is it more of a... Like, it's not something that's literally happening, right? It's just a... It's more it's symbology? A visual, visual metaphor. Right, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when and you're describing that, like, it, it kind of makes me think of... And this might be totally off base, but when you were describing it, the image that popped into my head was uh, the that image two. from Pompeii. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> with the with the two people who are embracing, and they're basically just ash bodies now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that would that's, be a fair. That's definitely a consideration. <clears throat> okay. um, mm-hmm. Right, um, and then like as you were saying with that debate of do you know or do you really can you really know um that's a very relevant you know to modern discourse as well where uh a lot of the sort of arguments and debates we have now are about whether you know people can truly understand people with different experiences who have different lived experiences than you and if you can truly understand that in a way um and it's it's not a one-sided debate in the film either. Uh, I think Renee does certainly respect to some extent that uh, this guy is in some ways right to be saying you you saw nothing at Hiroshima. You don't really know. But on the other hand, does he really know either? I mean, he lost people there. That's I, that was a very serious trauma. But he wasn't in the location, obviously. So he is essentially learning about it the same way she is through you know, newsreels, reconstruction films, uh, uh, what and whatnot. Um, of course, it would have a greater resonance to him because he lost people and because it's his own nation kind of experiencing its own, it's the experience of his collective people. But uh, it's not truly lived experience for him either. So yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't even fully considered that. But yeah, and then it complicates <laughs> the matter. The other thing I kept thinking, too, is the fact that Renee, a couple of years before this, makes the documentary Night and Fog, mm-hmm. um, which is, like, it's a short documentary, but it's, like, it's a hard watch uh, about the Nazi concentration camps, and it uses a lot of the footage as footage that was shot by the Nazis, and that that's another film that's, I, it's been a, bit since I've seen it and I'd want to rewatch it before really talking about it uh, intelligently but that's dealing with this notion of like are we able to really understand um, what we're seeing from this and how taking into account the distance we have to the images and yet it's also one of the most direct uh, visual representations that I'm aware of anyway of um, the Holocaust so yeah yeah this pick. Yeah, this film was actually meant to be, uh, it, it got its genesis from him being kind of hired to do a follow-up to Night and Fog. That would be a documentary about Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he ultimately kind of came to the conclusion that making a doc, uh, sort of naturalistic documentary, he, he, did, he didn't really think he could do that justice in the way he could with the 
uh, Holocaust because he saw some other Japanese films about the topic and he felt he couldn't top that. But then it kind of evolved into this kind of uh, fictional, but still incorporating a lot of documentary in that opening as well. Yeah. I was going to ask that because I, I was assuming that a lot of the footage was, you know, not recreations, but documentary footage. Repurposed. Well, some of it is, in fact, it's, it's recreations, but it wasn't recreated by Renee. It was a film made by okay. a Japanese filmmaker. Um, so some of the some of the shots of like um, the puddled masses, that's not actual documentary footage. Okay. Uh, the woman emerging from the roof that's also taken from I believe the film is called Children of Hiroshima hmm. but I think there is some genuine newsreel stuff in there as well I mean it's I, again it's the kind of film that like you could imagine like an entire course being built around just this film and going through uh, the imagery because there's a lot to take in and then even the, the personal story that it tells is a complex really rich character study that again it's not the characters aren't just fluff to prop up this intellectual debate about uh, the nature of understanding history. They're, it's like a fully formed story that could have sustained its own great movie just by itself. Obviously it, it pairs really well with the um, historical consideration, but there's, it's a, it's a lot. It's a, it's a hard film. It's, it's challenging. Although of the three feature length Alan, Alan Renee films I've seen, it's the most accessible. <laughs> it's uh, easier to see what it's doing than Last of Jared, Mary and Bud or uh, the American Uncle. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Oh, I've seen, I think I've seen American Uncle, maybe. I don't know. But it's interesting to think about um, this in terms of like the early new wave filmmakers and like Truffaut and Godard, where in a way this almost feels like in between the two extremes that they'd end up taking on, where it has a very personal character driven story like Truffaut, but it is also dealing with sort of metatextual philosophical and political questions like Godard. And I think I would, I think you'd agree with me on this, Michael, better than Godard. Um, (laughs) I I have my issues with Godard. (laughs) Yeah. I think you and I see pretty, pretty well eye to eye on, on that. Um, There's a couple of his I might rewatch, but. Right. I mean, Rene is uh, part of the left bank branch of the new wave versus the Kiers du Cinema branch. Mm. Uh, so it's him and Agnes Varda and Chris Marquere and maybe Jacques Demi, if you want to count him. Yeah. Um, and I don't they, know where you placed Demi. <laughs> well, you know, he's, he was clearly part of that clique. He knew Agnes Varda very well, obviously. Um, <laughs> One would hope. <laughs> so, uh, but um yeah, and so they were a bit older, a bit, frankly, less edgelord than the Kiers du Cinema uh, crowd, and they were more interested in literature than in Maoist politics. Um, so, well, and that's interesting too. Like even thinking like when Godard starts with Breathless, where like those elements are there, but they're much more subdued than they'd become when you get to like his late sixties work where it's like, dude, shut up, Jesus Christ. But um, thinking about how like, clearly these films are part of a collective moment in film history and this, this change in form. And yet comparing Hiroshima Monomore to Breathless, like Breathless is a pretty juvenile pulpy crime story mm-hmm. at its core. And it's done in a juvenile pulpy way 
really. And this film is, it feels so much more like what you would think of as like an avant-garde movie, which maybe makes it like a less fun watch, but I think it's much more uh, compelling. For sure. So no shade to Truffaut though. We love him here. Indeed. Truffaut is not part of my uh, Cahiers de Cinema slander. Yeah. (laughs) He's the good one. Indeed. (laughs) So interesting. I'll have to check this one out. You should watch it. It's it's, it's watched good. twice. It Sounds like I need to be viewings. in the right mood, though. I, I noticed, Michael. It it's looks fair. like you watched it again as well. Yeah, this is. Uh, yeah, watch this thing to talk about it intelligently. Okay, like, did it like did it help? <laughs> kind of. Okay. Any uh, new revelations or? Uh, not really. I think it's. I mean, last time i watched it was around 2015 when i was putting together my top 100 movies list and i don't remember where i ended up placing it it's just probably gonna go up a 10 20 spots though so yeah it held up yes yeah nice where would you i guess i mean you don't have to get too much i i haven't seen i don't know i feel like i've seen not a lot of french new wave but i guess if i looked at the list it might be a decent number where would you rank this and just like the all like left bank and the Kaya's like in the canon, where would this rank? Uh, uh, top three. <laughs> okay. So pretty high. Uh, I'd say it and 400 blows are probably the two definitive uh, French new wave movies for me. Nice. 1959. Good year. They knew what they were doing. <laughs> yeah. Nice. All right. Ian, do you want to take us home? Sure. Okay. So this one I'm, pretty sure it's an opening moment i actually haven't seen this movie in a long time um, and i actually looked for it i couldn't find it on any streaming services other than crave which is a canadian streaming service that uh is really expensive and i don't want to pay yeah for. it sucks <laughs> i had it and they just started charging me an extra like it's, 10 or 15 bucks I'm like, what, what the hell is this anyway the so. movie is uh from t- 2011 called 50 50 which was oddly labeled like the cancer comedy when it came out which was weird because funny people was already the cancer comedy (laughs) right yeah and i mean there's one i mean it had seth rogan in it has comedic elements but it's it's still pretty drama-y for 50 50 and of course it's following the story of um joseph gordon levitt's character who's who gets diagnosed with cancer the moment i want to talk about and then I'll get into to why, but I'm just going to mention it because it's this one definitely fits our podcast because it's very, very small, but I think that it's got a lot of meaning. And so at the beginning of the movie, he's either he's jogging on the streets, like in the city streets, and he's either going to an appointment or from an appointment. I don't remember exactly. If they don't say. Yeah, maybe. And he's they, just jogging. Uh, it's exercise. Jogging. And what and then he reaches the intersection and a, like the crosswalk light comes on the do not do not cross sign comes on and the movie makes note of that image of the do not walk guy pretty pretty heavily and that's it that's the moment i want to talk about because when i saw this movie um i i got to give a little bit of context here and i'm going to get a little personal so 2011 was actually the year my wife was diagnosed with cancer and she was 28 so 
this and this movie came out she finished her chemo treatments in august of that year and this movie came out in like september or october so it was pretty fresh and so when i saw this movie when i saw that crosswalk sign i bought in immediately because i said okay these people get it because the moment i saw that i knew what they were going for that when because when you're a young person like this and you get it you get a disease like this aside from you know the the fear of dying and the fear of of um you know your body breaking down it also completely puts your life on pause that's one thing that that cancer does your life is on hold until you fought it off and you've beaten it off especially one like this which is like all consuming and basically you can't live your life until it's gone right you can't go to work um you're 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 basically you're stuck at home there's so many restrictions on your diets on everything and that one single image says so much about how much these filmmakers get it and having just gone through this with my wife I really appreciated that because I was kind of really wary going into this movie about, okay, how seriously are they going to take this idea? Um, and once I saw that image, I knew I was in good hands and I was because I, I think that they treat it really well. And then it wasn't until later I realized, well, the writer himself had, this is basically his autobiographical story in a sense, because he had gone through the exact same thing. And so it's coming from, a pretty deep place of experience. And so when we started this podcast, this was something I knew I was eventually going to talk about because it fits, it fits it so well, because it's such just a small little thing that I think speaks so much to what the movie is about. And I don't know that I would have picked up on that without the personal experience that I had that year. Um, yeah. So that's my moment. Oof. Now it's going to come in here with a fun, fun uh, nostalgia about seeing an iPod in the first frame. <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting because I think you talk about rooting this in a personal experience, but you picked up on something really specific that like, I think you needed a personal experience to pick up on. Because if I recall, this is also the bit where like he stops and there's like no traffic. It's like early, early hours in the morning and someone else kind of runs by and just passes him and he just that's sits a there. big part of it too, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're seeing, and that's the thing, other people are living their lives. Because when I was thinking about this, I thought, well, you know what? We kind of all went through the put our lives on pause last March. Like kind of everybody did that. We said, okay, we got to kind of step back and life is on hold for a while. But that's different because it's everybody. We right. were all in the same boat. Yeah. With cancer, it's, it's not. Everybody else is living their life. And that other jogger, I think, I'm glad you brought that up, Dan, because that's, I think that's a huge aspect to this as well and why it can be so difficult. Well, another, it feels like, sorry, go ahead, Michael. Yeah, another little note on that is as he's, uh, fine, as the walk signal does go um, and he starts going, you notice him kind of holding his back a little bit. Um, and that's, an early sign because I know if I remember right in this movie it had a tumor on his spine and that yeah, is kind of the so. first symptom if I recall mm -hmm. yeah 
Well, and this too, it feels like a setup where like that happens. And it's also telling you about the character. Like, okay, this is a guy who like, he follows the rules. Even if there's no traffic and there's no reason not to just jog, he, which is kind of a setup for that, you know, punchline of uh, when he gets his diagnosis and he's like, how can that be? I work out. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I recycle. Like obviously recycling has no <laughs> bearing on, you know, the diagnoses, but this notion of like, I I don't break the rules. I do what I'm supposed to do. I live the good, healthy life. And like, why is this happening to me? And like the fact too, that it, it sets that up and it also takes that like idea, which I think is like a profound sense of crisis. A lot of people feel uh, certainly with a diagnosis like this, but also in smaller ways all the time of like, why are these things happening to me when I do the things that should prevent them? taking that though and presenting it in a way that feels that's lighter and more comedic and yet in a way that's still like respectful and honest. Um, yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other little thing I noticed is I, I was able to rewatch this. It was on a regional streaming service with ads. <laughs> um, but uh, the, if as, so the movie starts out, I, I mentioned there's an, there's a sixth generation iPod classic uh, that he's holding as he's jogging. <laughs> As it's playing this music, it's something called Bricks or Coconuts by Jacuzzi Boys. It's kind of a ska-sounding thing. Um, and he's, he stops at the light, and at, right when he stops, the music also stops, which I don't think that's diegetic. He's not hitting pause, but on the soundtrack, it stops. And while he's like kind of running in place... Then once the walk sign finally comes back and the music kicks back in. Yeah, that's a uh, good, so, really good point. And it's probably just emphasizing that the idea. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I haven't actually seen this film since theaters. Me neither. <laughs> it's a shame. I remember time. really liking it. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. So this is a movie which I really liked it when I saw it. Four stars. Uh, gave it a lot of praise, but just as the year went on it just it just faded a bit um i don't know if it's one that's stuck with me a whole lot honestly i don't think i'd thought about it much at all before i remembered that you were uh when you brought this up for this episode um which i don't know maybe that says something about just how comedy is kind of it's hard to really give them the credit they're due when you're trying to kind of think about the great movies so to speak i'm not sure i would call this one of the great movies but it's a very good movie it's pretty much doing exactly what it sets out to do i I don't know that it has any major missteps yeah but at the same time it's not i don't know it's just not really quite pushing the cinematic form so it's hard to really truly give it its due so to speak well it's tricky too because it's a it it is a comedy but it's also it's not going for big laughs really so So it kind of so it kind of has that Mm -hmm. comedy kind of minimalism but it's also not something you're going to bring up as one of the great comedies either so but i do think it speaks pretty um honestly about its subject matter which shouldn't be discounted either like i think yeah i mean i think when i I saw it um my mother was going through a cancer scare as well she beat it eventually but uh so I, i definitely notice some of that it's it's as much about uh what it means to be a friend of someone in the situation or relative as it is to be right. the person and also how those connections can also kind of not always translate 
and be recognized. Which was pretty hard hitting for me, <laughs> like uh, to watch this a month after after we had just gone through all that crap. But I should I should mention that was ten years ago and all is well. So I will just say that right now. Just to our listeners right now, like ah, yes, all is so all is good and life yeah. is good. But yeah, so that's my moment. I just yeah. It's a good pick. It's just something that had held has held a lot of power for me 10 years, even though I haven't rewatched it since. I just, I don't know. I don't know why I haven't. I think I just, like my wife hasn't watched it and she will not even to this day. She's like, I'm not watching that movie. And I think maybe there's a little bit of that in me as well, why I haven't rewatched it. But that has always stuck out to me. And mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I think it is a powerful moment too. Like I, I don't, I didn't get the sort of, I related to it in a different way, but I still, in spite of the fact that I haven't seen this movie since it came out, which was 12 years ago now, or 10 years ago, sorry. Um, that scene, like that moment did still resonate, which I can't say that for a lot of the movies I saw that year, that there are still moments that I can remember that sort of precisely. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And does it, I mean, there are, th- there are aspects of it, I suspect, wouldn't have aged perfectly. Um I find movies about sort of young people tend to age a lot quicker than movies yeah, about could be. like not like young people in their, their like 20s. They tend to sort of the fashions, the music, that all tends to kind of age it's, a bit quicker. And it's something they want to emphasize at the, at the time, right? Like yeah. they want to emphasize those things. And then those are the things that get dated. I can see what you mean there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, there we go. Yeah, good picks. Yeah, some good uh, good opening picks. So, and that's just the beginning of the movies that we talked about. <laughs> <laughs> they all get so much better from there, except The Hangover. That one gets a little worse from there. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So that's those are our picks. Um, I mean, we missed a ton, right? Because we only picked six movies, and there's tons of movies out there with great openings. So. Anybody listen out there, let us know what, what are some of your favorite opening moments in movies. Uh, tweet at us at cinema underscore seconds. And email us at cinema and seconds at gmail.com. Yes, let us know. Yeah, I almost talked about Goodfellas and I almost talked about Full Metal Jacket. And I, I think it was like, talk about Scorsese and Kubrick a lot generally. I can probably... <laughs> yeah, Goodfellas is on my list too. Yeah. <laughs> I think at one of... point... Go ahead, sorry. A lot of movies where it starts kind of in the middle of the movie um, and then mm-hmm. flashes back. Those tend to be openings that stand out a lot. Yeah. That's yeah. A good point. Like Daredevil. <laughs> yeah. That's what we were all thinking. <laughs> that That is a movie that does that, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Does it do it effectively? Who's to say? Probably not. But um, I think at one point I made a list of like best movie openings and Goodfellas is my number one, which... I don't know if I would still feel like that, but it's a pretty good one. Oh yeah, that really opens with a bang. <laughs> hey <Hey-o. laughs> Um, cool. Uh, Michael, do you have anything to promote while you're with us? Uh, yeah, I'll do my usual uh, plugs. So my uh, blog of poorly proofread uh, reviews is uh, themovievampire.wordpress.com. Uh, I just posted my review of Belfast on there, uh, so that should be good. I'll probably have my review, belated review of the Eternals up there by the end of the week. 
hopefully. And uh, then uh, if you want to see my reviews in a more manageable way, uh, Letterboxd uh, profile on there is the movie Vampire. Uh, as I must always say, don't the name movie vampire don't it doesn't mean anything it's stupid I, I, it's a I, cool name i think yeah you, you stress that too much you you're I, one of the less embarrassing embarrassing old names just yeah so uh, trying to talk to people in person about that it's, <laughs> it's 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 tricky it's not all about horror movies it's not uh tr- when, when twilight happened that that really was a name that was not uh i got i got some google traffic out of it but See, uh, and then uh, my Twitter is uh, at the movie vampire. So I, 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 you're going to hate me for suggesting this, but I feel like your blog has to do some sort of Twilight thing eventually. Never. Come on, man. <laughs> you made the name and then the movies came out like yeah, a year later. I need to watch the movies, which I don't want to do. <laughs> but they're culturally interesting. <laughs> I, I've, I've, I've heard everything I need to hear about them. I will defend the first one to a modest degree. I've seen the baseball scene out of context. <laughs> you're not you're not tricking me into this. The only thing I've seen or read about Twilight is the last five minutes of the last movie. And I was like, what am I watching? What is happening right now? I will say, I will I think the last one's actually one of the worst ones just because it's it the split, even in a franchise that's crap, the splitting the one into two made that one so boring. Nothing's <laughs> happening until at the end they all start ripping each other's heads off, which is hilarious because that's not what happens in the book and the book they're just like we, we're not going to do this fight and they're like okay but i guess the filmmakers realize that's going to be really boring to the end of our five <laughs> film saga so they show this you don't know that it's like a fantasy that it doesn't actually happen so the characters just start fighting and beloved characters from the book get murdered and i i've heard stories about like midnight screenings of fans being like what's happening <laughs> which that's amazing oh, uh, i wish i could have been there for those moments not the rest of the film but i will defend the end of the last one in that as terrible as it is it feels very much like giving the fans what they want of like laying on the the schmaltz and the look how far we've come and the montage of previous moments well, it's terrible making is now you know what, giving fans what they, want. <laughs> they earned it these ones <laughs> <laughs> dan do you have anything you want to plug uh, uh yeah my, my new dark souls video uh dark souls and the Dark Souls difficulty and the easy mode debate. Um, this was a crap load of work and I'm so happy it's done, but I'm pretty happy with how it turned out. So if you like video games and uh, debate about game design and game accessibility and approachability, which is maybe a narrow audience, I don't know, but it's the video for you. Nice. So that's, that's it for me. All right. Well, Michael, thanks for coming on the show again. Always great to have you on. Good to be on. And yeah, so uh, I'm Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we'll catch you next time.